comes from the book of 1 Samuel, reading from chapter 17, verse 38 through to verse 48, 49 actually. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armour on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I can't go in these, he said to Saul. I am not used to them. So he took them off. He took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the stream. He put them in his pouch on his shepherd's bag. With his sling in his hand, he approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine with his shield bearer in front of him kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was only a boy, ruddy and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. David said to the Philistine, You come with me, you come to me against me with sword and spear and javelin. But I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. This day the Lord will hand you over to me and I will strike you down and cut off your head. Today I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the beasts of the earth and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. And all those gathered there will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine in the forehead. The stone sank into the forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. Eager. We're going to pray for you, mate. Looking forward, to, looking forward to seeing what God's laid on your heart. Nathan's one of our incredible, I don't know, is there a ministry team you're not on? Uh, youth ministry, <laughs> young adults ministry, worship ministry, women's ministry? No. 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 Sorry, I had to say. No. He joined that for a while, then he got married. I did. So it worked yes. well. No. Um, but, um, now I've got a woman in ministry. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, it's yeah. Good. Uh, Nathan, incredible uh, young man of God who's um, real passionate about the church. And so we're really excited to see, uh, to give you opportunities to preach, but also to, to see what God's laid on your heart. He's been working really hard on this. For, uh, I actually heard a story that you were working on this on your way to, Chris, on, to Sydney on, over Christmas yep. season. So yep. before Christmas, yeah. you were in the car. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. That's, mm-hmm. I love it. I love your heart, mate. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this mighty man of God. I pray that you would calm his nerves, Lord, but you would also quicken his thoughts so that your message would be communicated to your church this morning. Lord, we thank you for the work that he's done in preparation for this. So, Lord, we pray that he would have confidence that that you are with him. And, Lord, may you bless each and every one of us as we open up your word this morning. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Amen. Thanks for that. Excuse me. 
Um, I was going to introduce myself, but I think Tim's done that pretty well already this morning. Um, so typically what happens at the beginning of a sermon when somebody gets up here to talk is we do what's called an icebreaker, and all it's designed to do is really break down the ice between myself and you so that you take in better what I'm saying, and you're not nervous, and you're not like wondering, well, this guy's just up here talking, I don't really... I don't really know him. It's not really a comfortable feeling for me, but I want you guys to break down the ice with each other first. So for the people who are on the outskirts of your pews, scoot in, find somebody close, even if you're sort of sitting in the middle. If there's nobody near you, find somebody close, because I want you to get in groups of maybe two to four people. I want you to ask yourselves this question. What is your favorite thing to do? Now, it's a very general question. It's a very personal question, but what is your favorite thing to do? I'll give you about 30 seconds. Go. Awesome, awesome, awesome. So, we're going to move on from that a little bit. I've had some great conversations going. You guys seem a little bit less nervous. It's good. I'm going to get you to do the same thing for another 30 seconds, but I'm going to ask you a slightly different question now. This one's a bit more obscure. What is your favorite thing that other people do? Now, this could be something that other people do for you, the way other people react to something that happens, or something that people do in general, like collect your trash so that you don't have to take it to the tip every week. Just something that you like that other people do, or perhaps your favorite thing that other people do. Go. All right. Cool? Good conversations? Still going? Awesome. Um, so we've broken down the ice between you all now, so now I'm going to break down the ice between you guys and myself because I haven't answered the question for you yet. My favorite thing to do is to learn something new. It sounds very biblical, it sounds very scholarly, but I actually don't like reading books. I would prefer them to stay on the shelf where they should stay and where nobody should ever pick them up and look at them. <laughs> But I enjoy learning something new because I get to get it wrong, because it makes me uncomfortable, and I live for being uncomfortable, which sounds kind of strange, but I love being uncomfortable so much that my favorite thing that other people do is get uncomfortable. I like watching people, it sounds really strange, but I like watching other people recoil and squirm in those situations that they can't get out of, and I like being the cause of that. <laughs> like. Picture you're standing in a line getting ready to get coffee, or let's say you're going in, you're in an airport, okay? Nobody talks to anybody in an airport, especially in America. If you talk to somebody in an airport, it's considered strange. 
It takes people out of their element, and the person standing in front of you, let's say they got their headphones in, they clearly don't want to be interacting with the world. I'm the kind of person who, if I'm in the right mood, I'll get really close. Hi, how you going? All of a sudden, this person has to step out of their comfort zone. I don't do it often enough, which is great, because I'd probably be on a watch list or something. But I enjoy breaking people out of that zone of comfort so that they have to learn how to do something different, so that they have to react in a different way to what their norm is. But let's bring it a little bit closer to home. What about worship? There's a point in time in worship where some people just are so overwhelmed by what God is doing through worship and through their lives, and they just have to raise their hands. What if somebody came up to them in the middle of worship and just gave them a high 10? And they're sitting there, and they're holding this bridge shape for the rest of worship. Like, that would make not just the person who's getting the high 10 uncomfortable, but every other person in the church who can see what's going on is now extremely uncomfortable because they're watching this. They're like, that's not what worship should look like. Or maybe that's a bit extreme. I I give you that. (laughs) What about prayer? Greg Gillingworth taught us as a church how to pray differently or how to read scripture differently. He says, you should pray as if you're holding hands out in front of you like you're receiving a gift. This is how I try to pray every time. What if somebody, let's say somebody you don't know, just kind of came up next to you and grabbed your hand during prayer. You're sitting in this moment, you're like, God, thank you so much. I really appreciate everything you've done. And all of a sudden, you're in this place that you weren't expecting to be. Now, I am craving the day when that sort of happens. Not because you guys have been prompted now. Don't everybody run up to the front when you see me praying. But I wonder if I'll see it happening between you guys as well and pushing each other out of that zone of comfort. Because a lot of people don't like to live there, but I do. And I'm not the biggest guy around. I'm not exactly a tall fella. I'll admit that about myself. I'm vertically challenged. I stand at five foot nine, and I think that might even be a stretch. I think I'm just below the mark on the nine inch mark above five feet. And that's okay. Because I like to think that I'm still a fairly solid guy. I like to think that God has blessed me with the ability to produce muscle and to exert myself and to go through manual labor. I think I'm blessed with muscles enough to be actually give back to the kingdom and to bless you all with the muscles that God has blessed me with. <laughs> We're getting to content soon, I promise. <laughs> but whenever the pews need moving out of this room, sometimes you'll see people moving the pews. You'll have one person, oh, I'll grab this side of the pew, and they'll run to the other side. Oh, it's okay, I'll grab this side of the pew. I'll actually line two pews up right next to each other and I'll get into the position, and I'll hoist them up, and I'll walk through like an all-you-can-lift York Street concert. Like, I don't know what's going on, but I go hard because I like to actually exert myself. I like to use my strength to give back to other people, whatever that looks like. But what happens when my strength isn't enough to get something done? What happens when I approach something, and all of a sudden, my own ability, what I bring to the team, isn't enough to actually overcome that task. And if you really want to find me in a place of discomfort or a place of learning, look for me when I feel like I am not physically enough to overcome a situation that somebody has asked me to help in. We moved a fridge into our house yesterday. Ebony said, would you like some help? I said, I'll be good. I should have taken some help. We get it to the door, and we're getting it inside, and Ebony's like, do you want some help? Yeah, yeah, I could use some help. So we get it up the steps, and we move it in. And after all of that, I probably could have used her help the entire time, but because I'm me and because I like to exert myself physically and do stuff because I'm a man, I've got to get it wrong at least once, doing it my way before I listen to the voice of reason that is my wife. (laughs) I have to get it wrong at least once. Yes. But if you want to find me in a place of learning, find me in a place where I'm not enough, where I have to ask somebody else for help 
for something physically. And I think that's true of most people, not just with physical stuff. But if you actually want to learn something new, you have to move beyond this place of comfort. You have to move away from your notes and what you know, and you have to trust that being in this place where you can't actually rely on something that you already know, and you have to learn how to do something different. That's the place where people learn. That's where you will find people who start to recoil, and that's what I love to see. That's why I love to see it, because I know that in that situation, they are learning something different, not just about themselves, but how to react to a new situation. And I say this to you all, because in about 15 to 20 minutes, I'm going to make somebody in this audience very uncomfortable. I don't know who it's going to be. I say this, knowing that you guys know I've prepared this sermon in advance and that I've practiced it, I literally do not know who this person's going to be. I saw my mother-in-law sitting to my left. I might, I'm probably not going to choose my mother-in-law. I'm probably not going to choose Tim either, because Tim's up here most Sundays, and this is the place where I feel like Tim really thrives and gives back to the kingdom in a way that God has blessed him to. But maybe you've been in Ballarat less than 24 hours. <laughs> I'm just saying, I could call on anybody in this room. And what I'm going to ask you to do, it's not difficult, but it is going to take you out of your comfort zone because people can see you come up the front. And I'm trusting, I'm putting myself in this place of discomfort as well, but I'm trusting that God is going to put it on their hearts to actually step up and join me up here on stage because it's a big step to ask somebody who isn't planning to do anything except show up and sit in a pew and hear a good message and let it impact their lives to actually get up and be involved and be a part of an example that I haven't told them about previously. So hopefully it goes really well. By a show of hands, how many of you are a little bit scared of being chosen to come up front? <laughs> That's smart, because they know if they raise their hands, those are the people I'm going to be looking at. Cool? How many of you secretly want to be chosen to come up front because you're a bit excited about what it'll be? So everybody's a target. There are four people. Four hands went up. Everybody else is a target. That's great. So we're going to go back a bit to last week and what Tim was talking about when he was talking about um, anointing David and David becoming king. So in chapter 16, we look at this idea of what it's like to be overlooked in a situation. And Saul, the king at the time, has actually done some things that have displeased God. And he's actually sent out Samuel. God sent out Samuel to anoint the new king. All of this is happening, and King Saul knows nothing about it as far as the text tells us. So Samuel goes out and he goes to Jesse's house, and in Jesse's house there are eight sons, but one of them isn't there after he was asked to gather all of his sons. And he looks at Jesse's firstborn alive, and he says, surely this man is exactly what a king should be. Surely this is who the next king should be. And he does that seven times, and God says, no, that's not who I've picked, because you're looking at things that I'm not looking at. I'm not looking at what you want in a king I'm looking at somebody who's after my own heart. 1 Samuel 13 to 14, but now thy kingdom shall continue. The Lord hath sought a man after his own heart, and the Lord hath commanded him to be captain over his people. Someone after God's heart, not somebody who looks the part. So when we find David in this chapter, quite a bit's actually already happened. Uh, we started in verse 38 and went to verse 49, but I'm going to take it back a bit more because there are some things I want to share with you, not to go over the whole story, but because Goliath is actually a fairly terrifying guy when you understand everything that makes him up, despite the fact that he has four brothers who are also pretty big guys. But what we know about Goliath is this. He stands at nine foot six. It's, the Bible says he's six cubits and a span tall. Now, some versions say that's six foot nine, still a relatively tall guy, but most versions say that he's about nine foot six, so 2.9 meters. He's wearing armor that is 56.7 kilos in weight. He has a helmet of bronze, he has greaves of brass, he has a target between his shoulders made of brass, he has a spear staff that is thought to be about two to two and a half inches 
in diameter and as long as a normal spear staff would be. And just the head of the spear weighs 6.8 kilos. If you go to the gym and you pick up one of those medicine balls and you do your squats as you're walking back and forth across the gym, it weighs more than a standard medicine ball. He has a sword strapped to him. We don't know how much that weighs. And he has a javelin as well that's attached to him. We don't know how much that weighs. All of this to say, Goliath was a nine foot six man who was carrying an additional 71.2 kilos with him, assuming that the helmet, the greaves, the target, the javelin, and the sword, and the spear staff weigh absolutely nothing. I mentioned it before. I'm not a tall guy. I'm about five foot nine. Any given day throughout the week, I weigh somewhere between 100 and 110 kilos. My clothes may weigh somewhere between two to three, and I think even that's pushing it. Goliath stands a meter over me, minimum. He's a big guy, and he is in fantastic shape. I don't know if you guys remember when Ben Dainton was up here and he was talking about, um, what was his name? Samson. And he put his head on the face of a really good-looking man, and he had ripped pectorals, and he just abs for days. But this is how I kind of pictured Goliath, because he was the chosen champion for an entire army. You'd want this guy to win your battles for you. But he didn't come out, and he didn't stand and shout at the Philistines just one time wearing all this, and then David came down the mountain because David was there. David wasn't there. And he did it for 40 straight days. 40. It's a biblical number. I don't think that's a coincidence. So when the story begins, David isn't even around. He's actually off tending to sheep. And the only reason David actually comes to the front lines is because his father Jesse says, I want you to take this bread and take the cheeses, the bread to your brother, the cheeses to the captain of the army. Okay? And that's what actually gets David on the front lines. And we jump forward a bit, and we see David conversing with his brothers and with some other men. And David is confused as to why nobody has actually stepped up yet, why this Philistine seems to believe that he is able to stand against the armies of God. See, already, David is calling the army the army of God. He is giving God glory long before anything happens, long before he takes action. And what does his older brother Eliab do? He criticizes him. He says, what are you doing here? This is all, you just want to see a battle. Who have you left these sheep with? Basically telling him to go home. You don't really need to be here. You're done. And I'll tell you what I find most fascinating about this story. We haven't actually heard the voice of God yet. And if you continue to read all the way through the rest of the chapter, God himself's voice actually isn't heard. We can see what God does. We can see God's miracles. We can see what God has allowed people to go through. But God's voice isn't actually heard in the text as far as we see but David is already defending God's might. And I'll come back to that in a moment because I want to move on. I want to get to the good part where we actually see the fighting. David's confidence in God's armies is heard by people who are actually close to Saul, and they bring him before him. And Saul is kind of not too impressed by David. David says, it's okay, I'll go fight Goliath. Saul says, no, you can't. You're a kid. You're tiny. And David said, no, 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 it's okay. I've killed bears and I've killed lions, as if it's just something to throw under the rug. Like, I've done this before. It's not really a big deal. It is a big deal. David gets that. And that's not really what he's saying. But he's furthering his point, becomes kind of the pillar of his argument that he is actually qualified to fight Goliath. So Saul gave him a blessing. It's the second time, I think, that we actually see God being referenced in the story. The first time is when David comes. It's actually the third time. The first is when David comes and he's talking to his brothers and the men. The second time is when David tells Saul that I've actually been delivered out of the paw of the lion and the bears by God. And the third time is when Saul actually gives David a blessing from God and tells him to go. And he gives him armor and a sword. 
And it's not long before David actually takes it off and he puts it on the ground. He says, I've never used this before. I can't use this. So he goes out to meet Goliath with a shepherd's staff, with a sling, with a pouch, and with five smooth stones, each about an ounce. I'll come back to that later as well. But that's all he had when he went up against Goliath in the field. And they exchange a few words. And before long, Goliath is actually moving towards David. And David is charging. He doesn't recoil. He doesn't stagger back like this behemoth is coming towards me. He charges forward. He takes a stone. He slings it. And all of a sudden, the giant's fallen and hit the ground. Now, some versions say that he was dead before he hit the ground. Other versions say that he actually took Goliath's sword, cut off his head, and that's the reason Goliath died. But the fact remains that Goliath was killed by a sheep boy who was flinging around rocks. That's the story. And in all of this, God doesn't actually speak or give specific instruction telling anybody what to do as far as we know. We can assume that the men of Israel were praying. We can assume that some of them were fasting. We can assume that they were hoping that God would deliver them from this giant that none of them felt comfortable enough to be able to overcome. And until you pull apart what David says in verse 26, you don't actually understand the role that God's playing in the story fully and what God has already done in David and David's heart to get him to this point. In verse 26, we read this. It says, David said to the men who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach to so the attack that's happening and impending on Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Notice David didn't say this army. Notice he didn't say defy King Saul, the king at the time. Who, by the, he's actually been a fairly successful king up to this point, despite the fact that God is no longer pleased with him. But he was already giving God the glory long before he went out onto the battlefield. This is David now. So how do we discover hope when we find ourselves overpowered? Using David as an example. It's a great question. This is the part where a lot of the Bible college students and the theologians start to kind of squirm, because I'm going to say something that's a bit controversy, but I don't actually believe that David was overpowered in this situation. You have to look at it from the terms that David was actually going to get up in Goliath's face. Goliath was going to be here, David was going to be here. In that situation, David was absolutely overpowered, but I think what we forget is David was never going to get in Goliath's face. He was never actually going to get up close and personal with Goliath because that's not what he trained to do. That's not what he practiced to do. David wasn't a big guy. Goliath was absolutely massive. I can only imagine the size difference because he refers to him as a youth, and he's actually appalled by what he sees. He calls him a dog. In chapter 16, verse 12, the previous chapter, it says, David was ruddy. He had beautiful eyes and he was handsome. It didn't say he was a seasoned war veteran. It didn't say he was a natural born fighter. David was a pretty boy who played with rocks and talked to sheep. <laughs> and yet, God chose him. God didn't choose a man who was waiting on the front lines already. His older brother, Alive, hadn't gone out to fight Goliath either. He chose the sheep boy from the middle of nowhere. But as I said, David was never going to fight Goliath in hand-to-hand -hand combat. And of course, when you look at it that way, it's like, well, of course he was going to win. He was never going to fight Goliath. Exactly. All of a sudden, we see this guy who was overpowered in a specific situation, who's no longer fighting the way that the other person is going to fight. He's fighting in the way that he knows how to, and he's overcoming the situation the way that he has trained for most of his life. He came out with a shepherd's tool, not with a sword, not with armor and other things that he hadn't tested with what he knew and what God had already allowed to come his way through his life. 
And he trusted God so strongly, mind you, he went into this fight with nothing but a sling and stones and a staff to protect himself. I don't know that the pouch is much protection, but he went with that too, if you want me to add that to the story. So how did David fight a battle in which he was clearly overpowered when you look at the story? He was clearly overpowered. Goliath had everything on David except one thing. Number one, David didn't fight a foreign battle. David didn't fight in a way that he hadn't trained before. And what that means is he was never going to get up close and personal. He was never going to make himself so uncomfortable that he couldn't fight. It kind of contradicts what I was saying at the beginning. I like it when people are uncomfortable because they have to learn. But it changes when all of a sudden you've got an army behind you who's expecting you to do something. That's not the time to change the plan. That's not the time to step out and say, you know what? I'm going to fight in a way that I've never fought before. And he didn't say that. He trusted God, and he went to fight with a sling and stones and a staff, the things that he knew. And he said himself in verse 34 to 36, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. If he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. Again, he's giving God the glory before he actually goes out onto the battlefield. That's the second time that I was talking about. When God chose David as the next king of Israel, he knew this battle was coming. It wasn't a surprise to him. God wasn't suddenly in shock, like, what am I going to do? I'm going to have to step in. I'm going to have to save this guy. God had already allowed David's situation and his life to mold him into this person that he needed to be, to be able to perfectly handle this situation. But David didn't do it in just his own strength. David is giving God the glory. I have done this. These are my accolades. By the way, God is responsible for all of this. God has delivered me from all of this. All blessings come from God. So when you find yourself overwhelmed in your day-to-day life, and this is the application now, I don't want you to fight a foreign battle. I don't want you to fight in a way that you don't know how to. And I say the word fight because sometimes stepping out of the way and letting the giant run past you isn't practical, especially when the giant's been trained to fight up close and personal. He's not just going to charge past you like a juggernaut. He's going to get in your face, he's going to stop, and you're going to have to fight your way through some of these battles. But God has gifted you and tested you with every situation you have ever found yourself in, every single one. Number two. David was well-versed in his tools. And what that means is that he practiced with his tools. Do you know how fast a stone of about one ounce comes flying out of a shepherd's sling when it's done accurately? Anyone? About 60 miles per hour, which is about 100 kilometers. That's pretty fast. Um, It's actually thought that the stone can come out somewhere between 60 to 80 miles per hour. And it's done accurately from anywhere from 100 to 200 meters. That's an impressive shot with a rock and a sling because he's not shooting it and he's arching it like that. He's flinging it around. He has to release at the right point in that circle that he's been flinging around in his head. The rock has to go the distance. He has to release it with a right flick, has to go the certain distance, has to hit his target accurately at 200 meters. Now, when we hear this story, David and Goliath are conversing, so I don't think they're that far apart. It doesn't make sense. But he still took down a giant with a rock. And it's funny because slingers were actually sometimes considered more lethal than archers. Because at that distance, if people are wearing armor, if people are wearing leather armor, an arrow won't always pierce that. 
but the concussive damage from a one-ounce stone that's flung at 60 miles per hour across a football field and a half actually does a lot of concussive damage. It can break bones. But David didn't go out onto the battlefield and fire his sling for the very first time. He didn't say, God, I've never done this before, and I don't know that I should be the one doing it. But he'd been practicing it. He had to have been. We know of at least four times when David has flung his sling previously, because he said bears, which implies multiple bears, and he did lions, which implies multiple lions. So when you add two and two together, you get four. So he's done it at least four times. And it's very easy to say, you know what? God stepped in, and God said he blessed him each and every time that stone left. Yes, but he was confident in his ability because God allowed him to be that way, because God has already tested him. In every situation David has found himself in up to this point, God has been testing him. And he kind of brags about it a little bit. It's not the right word, but he goes to Saul, and he uses it as one of his accolades, as a pillar for his argument to go down and fight Goliath, and it works. But David had to have practiced, not just once, not just twice, again and again and again and again, because you, in order to get accurate, in order to be good, in order to be the best, in order to be better, even if you are a prodigy, you must practice your tool if you want to get any better. That is true of anything you do in this life, be it physical, mental, or spiritual. If you want to be better at praying to God and you struggle with talking to God because I don't know how to pray, a really great way to get better at praying is to practice praying, just to do it and to get used to doing it. This is that part of the sermon where I get somebody to join me up on stage and to do something really uncomfortable. I still don't know who I'm going to pick. Um, hey, Miranda, are you able to trust me and come up on stage for a couple minutes? Is that okay? Can we give her a round of applause as she joins me up on stage, guys? Cool. Really, really simple example. I'm going to pop this over here. Okay, it's just a trash can. There's nothing in it yet. And I'm going to give you this. All you have to do is from here. I don't know how many there are, so if you run out, I'll get you some more. But you have a minute to get just one in. I just want you to get one in. Yep. So I want you to stand right here. Cool. I'll give you that stack. I'm going to give you 30 seconds. Yeah, you're going to throw as many as you can. Take your time. It doesn't have to be fast. You don't have to get as many as you can. I just want you to try and get one in, okay? Because one's all that matters. Cool? Then after 30 seconds, I'm going to change it up a little bit, and I'm going to get you to do it again and see what's different. Okay? So 30 seconds from right now. Go. And stop. Cool. Is that pretty hard? Yeah? All right. You are very close. I appreciate how close you got. Yeah, you did. You hit it twice. That's okay. I'm going to change it up just slightly, okay? Ever so slightly, okay? I want you to do exactly the same thing for the next 30 seconds, okay? Starting now.
Did you get it? Cool, keep going. Awesome, awesome. There you go, awesome. I love the fact that she did that. I love the fact that she did that. So come up to the front, we're gonna debrief a little bit, okay? So the first time, were you glad that you had 30 seconds yes. to actually practice? I wanted some more time. You wanted more time? Yeah. Yeah? I'm a perfectionist. So That's okay. I love it. Yep. 30 seconds was good. 30 seconds was good to practice. Okay. What changed the second time around? Ooh. Thank you, Tim. Thank you. Wow. Um, well, one, I'd practice, so I, like, knew some stuff of, like, how to do it or how much to throw, but yep. then everyone was cheering, so... Mm -hmm. That was also a thing. Absolutely. That was different. <laughs> yeah, nah. So when David went out onto the battlefield, do you reckon it was deathly silent? I don't know. I don't think so. It says that the army of the Philistines was cheering pretty loudly, and if an entire army was riding on your back, do you reckon you'd kind of feel that pressure? Do you reckon they'd be quiet yeah. about it? Like, go, good job, no. make good choices, be safe. <laughs> no. That's no. kind of my thing. But um, no, but I appreciate you doing that. Thanks for that. Oh, wait, I'll just take it. Oh, back. yeah, that'd be great. Thank you. <laughs> awesome. Did anybody notice what she did at the very end? Yeah? I'm really glad she did it. I was hoping you would do it. But at the very end, what did she do? She went over and she picked him up and she put him in the trash can. What I told her to do, I gave her a specific set of instructions. I said, stand here. The goal is to get the paper airplanes into the trash can. I said, stand here. Gave her 30 seconds to practice. And at the end of everything, what did she do? She walked right over here because she knew, she knew that if she picked this up and she stood right here, the chances of her not getting in aren't that high. It was possible. But all she had to do was drop it into the trash can or the rubbish bin. Is that what you call it in this country? Rubbish bin? Yeah, sorry. But you have to practice your tool. 30 seconds is a fair amount of time to practice something like that because in a minute to win it, that's all you've really got. You get about 30 seconds to practice and then you just got to go for it. But you have to practice your tool. You have to practice what God has given you. I don't know what that is for each and every one of you. I don't know each and every one of your stories and your situations, but if you have no idea what your tool is or what you're supposed to be doing or what God is putting you through at the moment to challenge you for the sake of being uncomfortable so that you can grow, come chat to me after the service. That's why I'm up here. I'm not up here to hear my own voice. I've been practicing my tool for the last week. I've been practicing this sermon over and over and over again. Weeks before that, I was just putting it together, figuring out what I thought you guys might like to hear, all for the purpose of 20 to 25 minutes, possibly 30. The last sermon I did was 40 minutes, trying not to go that long today. <laughs> all for the purpose of spending this short amount of time with you guys to equip you and to encourage you into using your own individual tools to do exactly the same thing that I'm doing up here. The Great Commission. Love God, love others make disciples. That's all I'm doing up here. Those six words. Last sermon I delivered, that was the entire crux of the message. Love God, love others, and make disciples. That is the whole reason we are gathered here in this room. So what happens when you've practiced your tool, and you've given the time, and you've gone through your situations, and you've learned, and it still isn't happening? What happens when practice doesn't pan out when the time comes? I'll tell you what David did. He trusted in God's strength, not just his own. Not just his own strength. I don't have it written up there, but not just his own strength. God doesn't say, rely on just my strength, sit back and do absolutely nothing. 
think one of the best parts about being in the church is God gives us an action. He says, make disciples. He didn't say you have to do it on your own. He didn't say it wasn't going to be difficult, but he gave you an action word. You have to do something. But in doing whatever it is that you do, make sure you're not just doing it in your strength. It's a lot easier to lift a pew with two people. I don't like doing it, but it's a lot easier to lift a pew with two people than it is to lift it with just one person. But nobody else was going out to meet Goliath at this point. His older brother Eliab, who ridiculed him, he wasn't going out. None of the other soldiers, people who had probably trained in hand-to-hand combat, people who'd probably been to war before, people who were far more qualified in this particular situation from the outside appearance than David was. And yet God chose David. God chose a nobody from the middle of nowhere who keeps sheep to lead the army of Israel in victory. So when the time came to step up to the plate, I mentioned it before, David didn't just step up in his power. He listened and he he listed his qualifications. And then what did he end with? In verse 36 to 37, he says this, for God has defied the armies of, for they have defied the armies of the living God. Already giving God the glory. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion, the Lord who delivered me. Yes, I had to act, but the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the bear or the lion will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And what did Saul say? He said, go and be with the Lord. That's the blessing. That's the third time God is mentioned throughout this chapter. So not only was he clearly going to try and match a man who clearly outclassed him in every way but one, he was going with the knowledge that everybody behind him was counting on him to win, because that was the custom, kind of getting close to the end now, but the custom was at the time, when they sent out a champion, the other side would then choose to send out a champion or attack right away. To attack right away was dishonorable, so they also would send out a champion, and whoever's champion won would be served by the other people. Goliath himself, when he was taunting the Israelites, he said, send out a champion, and if I lose, we will serve you, and if you lose, sorry, if I lose, we will serve you. If you lose, you will serve us. Sorry, I play on words. I'm not really good up here anymore. (laughs) But um, that's what he said. And that was what was riding on David's shoulders the entire time. All of that riding on his shoulders. And he still refused armor that was designed to protect a man and a sword that was designed to kill a man. That's what he was going out there to do. He wasn't going out to make small talk and to try and convince Goliath, "Mm, maybe don't do this. That's really not what I want. I don't want to die today. So can you just, you know, go away? He was going out there to fight. He was going out there to kill Goliath. He refused the sword and he refused the armor because they were foreign to him. But God wasn't foreign. God was not foreign to David, nor was what God had put David through foreign to him. So when he came to this situation, he stepped out onto the battlefield in faith, knowing that God had his back. Because he was of God's people. And he knew that God loved his people. And he knew that God loved him because God had already chosen him. God had already anointed him as the next king of Israel. And God had already blessed him with everything he had up to this point. This is a man who is after God's own heart. This is what it looks like. And what happened? God showed up. God will always show up. Not necessarily in the way that we want, which even as Christians is hard to take in. Because it's like, God, I really need a new car to get to work because mine just broke down and God doesn't provide a new car. What do you do with that? It's interesting because God's strength and God's plan doesn't always line up with what we want him to do or with our plan of what God should be doing in our lives. So how do I overcome a situation? How do I fight a battle 
in which I am clearly overpowered. I want you guys to say this with me because I'm going to give you some answers. So let's go. How do I fight a battle in which I am clearly overpowered? Number one, don't fight a foreign battle. What I mean by that is use the tools that you have. Use the situations that you learn from. I've been saying it the whole sermon. Use what you know and how to fight. And I said it before, it is going to be a fight sometimes. You're going to have to get in there and do something. Number two, practice with your tools. You have to practice with your tools, okay? You need to know what tools you have. You need to know what they look like. You need to know what they feel like. You need to know how they make you feel, Okay? You need to know how they move, and you need to know how you move when you are using these tools, because it's really great to see somebody else using a sword, but if you've never used one, and you pick it up, and you try using it the same way as them, as soon as the sword's coming back towards you, all of a sudden, you've cut yourself. You need to be careful with how you use these tools. You need to know how you move when you use them. And number three, you cannot act in just your own strength just your strength. It doesn't mean that you don't do anything. It means that whatever you do, keep God with you because his strength will always be more than enough for any situation you are in. Not enough, more than enough for any situation that you find yourselves in. And he has your back. I'm going to invite the band up as I pray for you guys today. And as I do, I want you guys to be aware, if you're not already, of the things in which God is challenging you in, in the ways that God has already been working in your life. And if a situation has come to the top of your mind and you need to be able to work through that and you need help getting through that and honing that skill and sharpening that blade and making sure that the grips on the knife is actually what it should be so it doesn't slip out of your hand when the time comes, if you need to make sure that the armor that you're going to be putting on has been tested and that the links aren't falling apart in the chainmail. If you need to understand these situations tonight, I'm going to be praying for you. If you need to learn how to hone these situations, I'm going to be praying for you. And if you're like me and you like doing everything in your own power, I'm going to be praying for you. Because all three of those things are key to overcoming whatever Philistine, whatever Goliath, whatever mountain or giant is crossing your path or will ever cross your path. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for today. Thank you for the privilege that it's been to be able to talk to York Street and engage with them and have them engage in this sermon of learning what it actually means to come up against something like Goliath and understand what it means to have the tools already in our arsenal that we need to be able to fight these giants and these situations and these battles that are are inevitably going to come across our path. We thank you, God, for the community that we have in this room and for the opportunity that we have to laugh and to learn and that we have people who are not just watching us go out to battle but who are stepping up behind us, God, who are fighting with us. And yes, we have to swing the sword, God, but it's nice to know that somebody has our back in case somebody else swings back at us. I thank you, God, for the privilege it is to be a part of this church, and I thank you for the privilege it's been to speak today. And I pray that as we go from this place, the people who need to rely in your strength, God, are relying in your strength. I pray that we're not trying to do everything on our own because you never asked us to do that. I pray that we are learning how to sharpen our tools, and we are learning how our tools move and how we move with these tools because that is going to be paramount to how we actually win these battles that you're allowing to come our way. And God, I pray that you help us to understand what these tools are first and foremost. I pray that you help to keep us aware of these situations, aware of these times when 
we're learning something new. We're using something new. We're learning who we are because you've allowed us to. We thank you and we pray for these things in your son's name. Amen.